the last week we began to look at this passage and we noted, spent most of the time noting an important way that the Bible writers read their Bibles and how they understood certain things and why it's important for us to see the same thing. What is used in this passage is often called typology. And uh, it's a way of reading the Bible that looks for patterns in the Old Testament that may be repeated that are then fulfilled in the New Testament. The Greek word is type, that means pattern or form, and antitype, which is the fulfillment of that pattern or form. So it's something that can be an event or a person or an institution in the Old Testament that we find when we read the Bible finds uh, a fulfillment in many parallel ways in the New Testament. One chief example is the famous story of Abraham offering Isaac. We are told in Genesis that he was called to go up a specific mountain called Mount Moriah, and he was to take his son and offer him as a sacrifice. And so we are in the passage called to picture Isaac carrying the wood on his back as they go up the mountain, and Isaac says to his father, here's the wood, and you are carrying the fire in your hand, but where is the, the ram or the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham says, the Lord will provide for himself a ram. And that's, in fact, what happens, that when the time comes for sacrifice, rather than sacrificing Isaac, there is a ram whose horns are caught in the bushes, and God directs him to take that ram and offer him in place of as a substitute for Isaac. Now, to them, that was simply an experience. However, we find that that's a pattern that is repeated and finds a fulfillment in Christ who also was sent up Mount Moriah, which is the name of the mountain on which Jerusalem is built. And outside the city gates, he is offered there after he carries the wood of his cross to the place of his crucifixion. But instead of being substituted for, he becomes the substitute in the place of sinners. There are all kinds of patterns of uh, fulfillment that are found in that. That's a type with its antitype. Now, we looked at this in a little detail last week because it's the basis on which this passage is built. And its passage makes a very firm application that we want to think about this morning to us as believers today. It compels us to listen to it, to reflect on it, and to respond to it. And in order to do that, we have to understand what is the parallel that the writer is drawing? What is the significance of it? Now, again, using a diagram that I uh, showed you last week, there's the basic flow of the passage is meant to be represented here. What is number one, the third column in this little diagram, is um, the psalm that the whole passage is built on. If you have a Bible open, you can note in chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, there's a quotation, and it's from Psalm 95. It begins with the words, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. That passage from Psalm 95 is the basic, like the scripture reading, on which this whole section is being developed. You're meant to keep that passage in mind, even though other passages are referred to. Now, that passage is something written uh, by David in about... 1,000 B.C. when David reigned, and he's referring to a previous event. And so you hear, have, have this passage, Psalm 95, today if you hear his voice, don't rebel like your ancestors did. Now what is that point that he's referring to? That's what I've numbered two here. He's referring back to a previous event. 
And that is found in Numbers chapters 13 and 14. And the previous event is that the Israelites, as they wandered in the wilderness, were called by God when they were at a place called Kadesh Barnea to go up into the land and take the promised land. God had promised to give it to them. He now has prepared them for this. And uh, before they do that, they rebel against him. Now, the land is called, in the early books of the Bible, rest, the place of rest, the rest that God would provide for them. It's meant to describe a place that would be free from enemies, free from opposition. It's described in Eden-like terms of uh, what it would produce for the people. But out of fear that they would not be capable of doing what God had called them to do because they didn't believe his promises, they stubbornly told God that uh, they, they wouldn't go. The result was that God allowed that whole generation of people over 20 years of age, earlier I said just the men, I think that was wrong, all of those over 20 years of age, the warriors and the women, were going to die there in the wilderness during a 40-year period. And so for 40 years, people died. That whole generation died, all except for two in that generation, Joshua and Caleb. The rest of them over 20 years old died so that a new generation, those under 20, would grow up and be the ones who would then take the promised land. They would obey God. That's what's being referred to in verse 2. When he says, for good news came to us just as to them, the call to enter into God's rest, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And again, he says in in verse 6, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Now the point the writer is making in the book of Hebrews is this. If David in 1000 BC says to his generation, today if you hear his voice, don't rebel like the previous generation, And he's referring back to a previous generation 450 years later who didn't respond, then there must be a rest open that wasn't fulfilled back then. After all, in the next generation, the people did take the land. Joshua and Caleb and all of the younger generation went into the land. They possessed the promised land. And yet that didn't seem to fulfill the promise because he's still quoting this promise that God said, they shall not enter my rest, those who disobeyed, those who turned away, who failed to believe. And that's what he means, again, when you look at verse 6. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again he, that is God, appoints a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterward, and the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. The point is, Joshua was the one who led the next generation into the the promised land. They entered the rest of God. But apparently, this promise of rest must be something greater than the land. The land was not the true rest, even though it's called the place of rest, the rest. So this reminds the writer of a third passage. Is there a place in the Bible where we could gain some insight into the meaning of the word rest and what comes 
to his mind and to the careful reader of the Bible as well, is the first time the Bible uses the word rest. If you're reading the Bible for the very first time, you read through chapter one of the book of Genesis, you you read in chapter one about the six days of creation, God creates everything that is, and then you open chapter two and he rests on the seventh day. When you read that, you can realize, if you're reading carefully, that the words about the rest of God are of epic importance. This is not just some throwaway words. It's not just a transition from chapter 1 to chapter 2, even though it functions that way. Here's what it says, chapter 2 of Genesis. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Interestingly, in the Hebrew text, those entire three verses are in multiples of seven. The word seventh occurs three times, and each time it's in the middle of a clause of seven words. It's all done very carefully to demonstrate the perfection of creation. In fact, what's most noticeable about this passage is when it describes the seventh day, it describes it in terms completely unlike the first six days. The first six days all end the way chapter one ends, at the end of the sixth day, the final day of God's creative activity, when he created his image, the human race, male and female, and placed them on the earth. It ends with these words, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Each of the six days ends that way. There was evening, and there was morning, the first day, the second day, and so forth. This one doesn't end that way. There's no note of morning and evening, There's no listing of the day, accounting of the day. And this implies, as interpreters from ancient times have noted, that there's something in this passage that is meant to indicate that God intended for the seventh day to last throughout eternity. In fact, having created the first two humans and giving them a function to perform, that is, to cultivate the earth and turn the entire earth into an Eden, having done that, when you open into the seventh day, he intended that they would do all that they'd been commanded to do, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, to rule over the earth as God's vice regents. When he commanded to do that, he intended that they would do it during the entirety of the seventh day. That is, it would be within the completed creation in which God blessed everything that he had made. He said it is very good. It is just what he intended it to be. And everything would function in that way. The earth would bring forth its produce at the work of the human race. The earth, the the, the race would expand and multiply without the pain that we find in a fallen world. That's the implication Of course, the unfolding story doesn't proceed that way. We come to chapter 3 of Genesis. And the first two humans fall into sin and carry with it the entire creation into sin. From Genesis 3 on, you're still remembering that there's this rest. God didn't rest because he was tired. That's certainly not implied in that passage. God's rest was the completion of his creation. And the intention that all would enter into that completion and the enjoyment of it. Now, if we take this word rest and we trace it throughout the Bible, what we would find is things like this. 
the next time rest occurs, it's in the weekly Sabbath rest. That is the command given to Israel that the seventh day of the week, they are to set it aside as a day of rest when they do no work. Obviously, the intention of that is to enter in some small way into God's rest. That is, to realize that the labor of the earth is not totally dependent on their work, on their sweat. It's dependent on God's provision, ultimately. That's the weekly Sabbath. Then you go on, you find out that the promised land becomes the place of rest, offered in Eden-like terms. And then when you go on, Jesus appears and he offers rest. He says, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then there's the final rest that's spoken of in this passage. Now, we don't have time to go in depth through all of these images of rest that arise. I just want to look at the last one with reference to Jesus' offer of rest as we go on. But this last one is Hebrews chapter 4, this offer of rest that the writer says is still open to you and me. It's still open to re-enter into the rest of God. Now, I want you to note in the diagram they're using here, there's a fourth step. It's probably wrong to call it the fourth step because it's something that appears throughout. It's like throughout his reference to these three passages and these three time periods, there is this last one, and that is the application. The application's made throughout, and it's made, you might say, to those reading the book in the first century and to everyone in the gospel age. It goes on. It's simply saying this day that David referred to in 1000 BC, today, it's still open. It's open to you. Today, if you hear his voice, do not respond as your ancestors did. The application is made throughout. Look at the first verse. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. There's immediate application. Verse 11 ends with it. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Now, what the writer is doing here is he's taking these three passages and particularly the point made in Psalm 95, and he's drawing a parallel. He's saying there's something about this event, Israel in the wilderness and how they responded to God, that parallels where people are at today in the gospel age. What is the parallel on which the writer makes this strong application. How does this parallel function here? What are we meant to identify and say, oh, I see what he's talking about. Now I understand why I should respond that way. Well, to see it, I want to have you look at this uh, map, map of uh, part of the ancient world. At present time, this uh, right here from about uh, the north part of the Red Sea all the way up just south of Gaza, that's the border of present-day Israel. Israel is up here. This, Edom and Moab, are Jordan at the present time. Midian is where Saudi Arabia is. And Egypt is all of the rest of this at the present time. Now, the story that we're told in the Old Testament is that Israel lived primarily in this city of Ramesses that they built. And they were uh, rescued by God out of bondage in Israel. They came across some portion of the Red Sea, which is called the Sea of Reeds, by the way, in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, and they, they go into this deserted area that is the Sinai Peninsula. They make their way down as God guides them to this place. Presumably, it's unknown if this is the exact location, but it was called Mount Sinai present time, there's a very famous monastery that's been there for about 1,800 years 
uh, Orthodox monastery, St. Catherine's Monastery, that's on that mountain, the traditional site of where Mount Sinai is. And uh, there, while they're at Mount Sinai, God calls this group of people made up of 12 tribes that have some loose connection to each other. He calls them into covenant with himself. He gives to them his law that unifies them as a nation. He uh, tells them to build this massive tent-like structure called the tabernacle in which he will be present and walk and live among them and they can worship him. And uh, after they have been settled there for about a year learning all of these things, they uh, are called to begin to move. And this red line on this map is meant to follow the path that they went to as they made their way up to this place right here, Kadesh Barnea, which happens to be right about at the border where present-day Israel is. And from there, God says, now it's time to go north into the Promised Land. Now, back in Egypt is bondage. Up here in Canaan is rest. And there, in this interim period in between. Now, from the writer's perspective... This was unknown to them, of course, but from the writer's perspective, they were engaging in something, and Moses was recording something that would become a type or a pattern that was going to be fulfilled. It was like an earthly example of a reality that would be fulfilled when the Messiah came. And that's what the parallel is that he draws. He sees Israel in the wilderness, In an interim period between redemption and rest, they had been saved by blood and power out of bondage in Egypt, but that wasn't the whole of their story. It wasn't over. They'd been called to move from there by faith, the faith they exercised in the beginning, by a continuing faith up into the promised land. So their lives were viewed, as they're in the Sinai Peninsula, as um, a pilgrimage between bondage and rest or between redemption and rest. They were living in that interim period. Now, from the writer's perspective, what is described there, Israel in the wilderness choosing to obey or disobey before they enter the rest, he sees that as a parallel to what is going on for Christian people. That is, we are living in the interim between Christ's first coming and his second coming, between the cross and the empty tomb and the rest of heaven. Uh, we look back not only to that first Easter, but we look back to our own Easter, that is that point at which we individually trusted in Christ and experienced the benefits of of redemption. And our lives are a time of discipleship. We are on a journey. Up here is the restful haven of God's presence that we long for. And our interim experience is lived in the wilderness of this world from the Bible's perspective. Our pilgrimage to the promised land is not camping in a literal wilderness, as Israel did, but it is viewed in Scripture as an experience of living in a place that is not our true home, having only a temporary abode here like people live in camps, excuse me, in tents when they're camping. We are called to live in the same way that they live the reality out of here physically, as alien and strangers in a place that we know is not our ultimate home. And the call on the basis of seeing the parallel there of this interim period between redemption and final redemption, the call is, let us strive to enter that rest. Now, when you think about that, 
in that description of the Christian life, you might hear what I'm saying as a call to do something in order to make sure you make it to heaven. Like it could be a form of works redemption in which, you know, you're redeemed by the blood of the lamb from slavery to sin. But now in the life of discipleship, you better do the right thing so that you're sure that you enter into rest out here. It could be understood that way, but that would contradict the promise of Jesus. After all, what did Jesus say? He said, the one who hears my word and believes him who sent me has, present tense, eternal life and will not or shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That is, Jesus promises the person who right now hears this message about him and trusts in him has possession of what that final rest will be, even now. Will not come into judgment. That is, there cannot be a judgment in which this person's eternal destiny is at stake because that judgment has already been taken by the Son of God. So I think we have to think very carefully about what it is the writer is drawing on. What's he paralleling and what does he mean when he says strive to enter that rest? Now, let me use one more diagram. This is one that I've often used before and I want to describe it again. This is meant to picture for you how Jesus fulfilled what the Old Testament prophets expected. In the Old Testament, the prophets looked forward, and here's how they saw things. They saw kind of a two-stage system. They lived in the present stage, the present age, in which there was trouble and oppression and opposition, and they looked like people traveling across a vast plain. They looked far in the distance, and they saw uh, these mountains, a mountain range, and what their perspective was, when we get to the mountains, we're entering into the world to come, the coming age. God is going to intervene in history. That's what the prophet said. He's going to intervene in some dramatic way in the coming of the Messiah. And when the Messiah appears, we will be changed from this age to the age to come. So they described it in very stark terms. They described it as the time when the lion will lie down with the lamb and the the child will play by a viper's den and not be hurt. They described it as a change from oppression to liberty, from a life in which wrongs are done regularly to a life in which God makes all things right. They looked to this two-stage change. Now, when Jesus came, he did bring what they expected. He didn't bring it in the way they expected because their perspective was skewed, In one significant way, when they looked forward, they saw mountains, and they believed it was one range. That range was the life to come, the intervention of God. When Jesus came, what he revealed is that there were actually two different mountain ranges. And just as from the distance, your eye cannot judge distance between mountains and think it's all a part of one range, there was actually a distance between the two, and that distance would be between his first appearance And his second appearance, something that the Old Testament did not make clear. And so he brought in the age to come. It's usually said he inaugurated it with his appearance the first time. He did all of the things that will characterize the coming kingdom, healed the sick, raised the dead, cleansed lepers, all of those things that the prophet said would characterize the age to come. He did it while he was here. And yet this age continues Because from the Bible's perspective, the two ages overlap. Now, what that means is that the Christian person lives caught between the two ages. People of this world live just in this age. 
They live in an age in which uh, they adopt the values and the standards and the behaviors of this world. That's all that they know. That's all that there is for them. The Christian person has been transformed inwardly so that we possess the Spirit who characterizes the age to come. And because of our possession of the Holy Spirit, the age to come is broken into this age. And we live in this age, struggling with all the things that occur in this age, but we live by the values and the standards and the behaviors of the age to come. All that the church is, is the interim community of people who say we belong to the age to come. We possess the power of the age to come. And we're going to live in this age by values and standards and behaviors that characterize or will characterize the age to come. We're going to do that now. That's what the church is. We live under the rule of Christ by his spirit under the word of God at the present time. Now, can you imagine the conflict that is meant to bring? There would be a continual conflict in this interim time period between this age and the age to come. It's a conflict that we experience in our relationship with the people of this world. It's also a conflict that we experience inside of ourselves as we still possess the flesh, the powers of the present age, and the spirit, the powers of the age to come. That describes that we live in the time between the beginning of fulfillment and the completion of fulfillment, sometimes described as the tension between the already and the not yet. We live both in this age and in the age to come at the same time. We are the new community of Christ preparing to live during this time for the full advent of the values that are coming. So think about a topic like justification. Big word, but justification is the Bible's word to describe what happens when a person trusts in Christ and in Christ alone. By faith, we are justified. That means we're acquitted of sin. And the image that is used in the word justification is standing before the bar of God's justice. And uh, the gavel comes down. And for those who have trusted in Christ, he has become our substitute. It declares him guilty and us innocent. He took the penalty, and so we go free. We're acquitted of sin. God accepts us on the basis of what Jesus has done. That justification, is it something we have now or we have later? Well, the fact is, actually, it's only in the age to come that we're going to literally stand before the judgment seat of God, and we're going to hear those words pronounced, and yet the Bible says we have it now having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Why is that? Well, the reason that they're both true at the same time is that we live now in the anticipation and the certainty that what will happen then has already transpired. It happened at the cross. That's the source of our justification. So we have it now. Both are true at the same time. And the same thing is true of rest. For those who belong to Christ, that rest, which is a final cessation of all the opposition and the struggle of this world and being in the presence of God, reaches back into the present time for those who are in Christ, and we possess it now. Entering into the completion of God's work, resting in his provision, that's both present and future. That's what the passage seems to say. That's why it says, verse 3, for we who have believed enter into that rest. 
Or verse 9, for whoever has entered into God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. That rest is the subjective feeling of confidence that though I am a sinner, I possess eternal life. Not because of who I am and what I do, but because of the Son of God. It's that reliance on him that knows that though I do not have the power to guarantee my continued faith or faithfulness, he does. I rest on his faithfulness to his promises so that now I know and I taste what will be true then in its completion. You know, so often through the years as I've talked with people, I've I've found that sometimes, many times, when I have an opportunity to speak with an individual about his or her faith, I find that even though they may have sat here for years, they may have been in Bible studies, read books, listened to tapes, whatever it is, that, that have talked about these kinds of things. If I ask them, do you think if you die right now you'll go to heaven? I've had people say, well, I'm not sure. What, what would you say to God if he would ask you, why should I let you into heaven? I've had people say, well, I, I've, I'm trying to do the best I can. And, and what I want to tell you is, that's not the rest of faith. It doesn't matter whether the person has been baptized, whether they're a member of a church here or somewhere else. It doesn't matter what they've done for God in some outward way. They have not entered into the rest of God. And that's why this passage begins with these words. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, that promise you accept by faith initially, since it still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to come short of it, seem to fail to reach it. Now, what is this fear? Let us fear. Is it fear that you'll lose your salvation? Not according to the passage. It's the fear of the one thing that will keep a person out of heaven, unbelief. That's what happened to the Israelites. The faith that they had, that initial faith, was not a faith that continued. When it came to the crucial time of following through on what their faith called them to, they turned back. They stubbornly refused to obey God. Faith is that continuing trust as we move through our barren pilgrimage in this word, that growing trust that God will make a reality out of what we possess by promise. Now, that's why we walk by faith, not by sight. And the writer's concern And it ought to be the concern of every person who is a member of a Christian church for each other. The concern is that we would all enter into that rest, even now, possess that personal faith in Christ. Because of of our weakness, the Lord gave us a visible, tangible sign of his presence and his promises to us, and that is the Lord's Supper. It's important to understand what is placed before us in the Lord's Supper. Remember that time when Jesus sat around table with his disciples? They reclined there with him, and he took the bread with which the meal of Passover opens, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Did they think that bread that he was holding was actually his body? Of course not. That defies logic. His body was localized in his person sitting there. He was holding a piece of bread. He meant this bread symbolizes its fitting sign that points to what I am about to do for you tomorrow on the cross. 
He held up the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, what he's saying there, what he was saying to his followers is what he says to every person who comes to him by faith now. I'm giving you a tangible reminder of the assurance that you have that just as certainly as you take food and you assimilate it into your body and it strengthens you to that same degree that you rely upon that every day, I am the source of eternal life. So when we come to the table, what we do is we see the sufficiency that is found in Christ. And it's like a visible, tangible form of a promise. The concern of this whole book is what the writer is going to call in chapter 6 the full assurance of faith. He is, dis- he is concerned that every person would enter into that faith that rests on Christ alone and not on Christ plus something else, my own obedience or anything like that. Faith that rests on Christ alone. The Lord's Supper invites us to the same thing, to look to him, to recognize that he alone is the source of life. Let's pray that that will be our experience today. Again, our gracious God, as we come before you, we thank you that you give to us this call that says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. I pray for each one who is here that there would be that internal recognition that it It is in Christ and Christ alone that life is found, that true life flows only out of that relationship, that true obedience to you can only flow out of that assurance of forgiveness and peace. We pray that that would be our experience today as we pray in Jesus' name.